A reading from the Revelation of John. See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay according to everyone's work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and fornicators and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It is I, Jesus, who sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let everyone who hears say, come. And let everyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. The one who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord be with all the saints. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you and these that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these last words of scripture in the book of Revelation, that you would help us to understand how we might live by the hope that they cast and how we might embody the truthfulness of Jesus' love in our everyday lives. So meet us, we ask, Father, Son, and Spirit, as we think on these things together. In Jesus' name, uh, amen. So we, uh, we've made it through the end of the book of Revelation. Uh, and today is the Feast of Christ the King. It's a time when churches throughout the world are very specifically thinking on and reading texts that focus on the kingship of Jesus, right? As we, um, 
reflect on the story of Christ, that he is the, the, the one who was born into our world, who is crucified, who is risen, who has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and who will come again to restore all things, to put all things to rights. And it's very fitting in some ways that we would end here in this last chapter of Revelation because it so beautifully takes us into a consideration of the hope that we are meant to live by uh, as Christians in our everyday world, and our everyday lives, namely that Christ is our king and that he promises to come again and bring the fullness of his new creation. As we've read through uh, the book of Revelation, we've noticed, right, that John uh, cycles through a series of visions, and those visions sometimes take us sort of out far away from the throne of God in which disastrous things and troubling things are happening. But John always circles back to this very core revelation of the presence of Jesus himself, uh, the lamb that looks as if he was slain but who is seated on a throne and whom God has given the right to open uh, the seals of, of history, really, the seals of life, the seals of his promised kingdom. And so all of history is moving toward this fullness of new creation. Um, and the book of Revelation just circles us back time and time again to the centrality of who Jesus is. So I want to think about hope this morning, uh, Christian hope in particular. And one of the Christian writers that's written extensively about hope is C.S. Lewis. And in his book, Mere Christianity, he says this of hope, um, of Christian hope. He says, looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but it is one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. For example, he references the apostles and their missionary work inside of the Roman Empire. He references the English evangelicals who sought to abolish uh, slave trade, right? He says this, he says, all of these persons left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were so occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. And then these words that you've likely heard quoted more times. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. So I want to think about what does it mean for us to be a community of God's people aimed at heaven, aimed at God himself and the promises, the promised world that he seeks to bring. So as we think about hope, a few things to keep in mind. Let's think about Christ's greatness, Jesus' generosity, and the desire of our own hearts. So the greatness of Christ, the generosity of Christ, and the desire of our own hearts. Now first, Christ's greatness. Verse 13. The visions have stopped inside of the book of Revelation, and John is simply reminded that uh, he's speaking to Jesus. He's encountering Jesus, and Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In other words, as we've said before, of this phrase, of this statement, what is Jesus claiming except this? That his story, his history, is the centerpiece of all that God is doing. 
Everything else sort of pales in comparison or everything else find its meaning in terms of its relationship to the core, to the centrality of who Jesus is. Verse 16, Jesus goes on and he begins to claim here these ancient titles that are associated with the expected king of Israel, the king of God's people, the one who would establish God's kingdom. These titles are drawn out of Isaiah's prophecy, the root of David, the dependent of David, the bright and the morning star. In other words, Jesus lays claim to the throne of heaven itself, to the throne of the kingdom of God. He says, this is who I am. In ancient times, the morning star, think about this for just a moment. The morning star would be an important marker of time for those who stayed awake all night keeping watch over a city at night, for example, right? And the moment you would see Venus rise in the east, you would know what? That dawn was breaking, the night was gone. You're, you know, so on the one hand, you might think, now I get to go get some sleep. But on the other hand, you think the vulnerabilities of night are past and day is here yet again. The cycle has started over. When Jesus lays claim to that title, kinds of things might that mark for the church except very simply that the darkness of this broken world is passing and the dawn of God's eternal kingdom is rising Jesus the morning star so whatever is happening inside of the lives of these first hearers of John's revelation whatever is going on whether they perceive themselves to be in spaces of joy and happiness and goodness and peace, or whether they're currently experiencing the kinds of sufferings that would have marked the lives of Jesus' followers in the first century. Some of that would be persecuting, right, persecutions of different sorts. Some of it could just be the simple uh, suffering that you and I still encounter when we encounter just the decline of our own health, right? Um, whatever was going on inside of their lives, what John is reminding them is that Jesus, who was born into our world, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, descended to the grave, who's risen on the third day, is seated at the right hand of God, and from where he will come to judging, judge the living and the dead, that his story has broken over the darkness of this old creation in such a way that his new creation will last forever. So Jesus' greatness, he is the king that was promised, he is risen, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's speaking these words to John as words of hope for the church of his day. Now second, the generous faithfulness of Jesus. At verse 12, right out of the gate, Jesus just very simply says, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay everyone according to their works. Let's think about what these things might mean. Promises. Promises are words that we make that give us stability in a world that's not stable. So if you're growing up inside of a home, and most of us have grown up inside of some situation in which we had some type of caregiver, right? Someone that was looking after us. One of the things as a little child that you expect of that caregiver, whoever it was, is you simply expect to be able to believe the words that they're saying, right? I mean, that's how children grow up. They don't know not to believe those words. They hold on to the words of a parent, of a caregiver. Um, but as we grow older, what do we realize about the words of our caregivers? Is that they were varied. 
And we recognize the limitations of our caregivers. We recognize the challenges of our caregivers. We recognize the broken promises of our caregivers right alongside of some of the beautiful promises that were kept. Our caregivers have limitations to follow through, and sometimes caregivers even lie to their children. Sometimes our experiences inside of this life of promises that have been made and promises that have been unkept or broken or false promises leave us wondering if we can ever trust anyone. Have you ever felt that way? We look on promises that are uttered and spoken with a little bit of uh, cynicism. Maybe we roll our eyes at a particular person that might be making a fresh promise, right? We wonder if that promise can be kept. But inside of all of us, I think we all long for the certainty of promises that are kept. We want to be persons of our word, and we want the people inside of our lives to be persons of our word, of their word. So what do you expect of God with regard to the promises that he makes? Is God someone like other persons in your experience as a human being that have failed to keep promises? So when you look at God, are you always sort of trying to give him an out, (laughs) right? Are you trying to give him a way out so that you experience other people as failing in their promises? Do you expect God to fail in his promises? Because John here is anchoring us in a promise of Jesus to come again and to finish the work that he started, as Paul puts it in Philippians. One of the other challenges that we have with promises, I think, when it comes to God is not just that some of our negative experiences as human beings get transferred to God himself, but also we begin to discover that the things that we actually want may not be the things God has actually promised. In other words, we hold God hostage to our own dreams that are devised apart from him. Our life with God is complicated. We hold him both hostage to our dreams on the one hand and to our experiences of the failures of people around us on the other hand. Revelation, however, is a book in the Bible that is meant and is trying to sort of enlarge our imagination for God and for the promises that he actually makes, that we would perceive his goodness and his power even when things aren't going so well in our own lives at the moment. And that our imagination would just keep running back to the kind of God that he is, to the kinds of promises that he actually makes. And we would find ourselves as Christians, as a community then, but also now, anchoring the life that we live this week inside of a faithful relationship to a God that we can trust, that we can believe in, that we can hold on to, that we can believe he will actually finish that which he started. So Jesus says, I'm coming again to generously make these things happen. And that will include um, judgment. (laughs) And so right here, right alongside this word of hope, We have this word of judgment that can sometimes feel a little disorienting or like it doesn't quite fit or it runs against the grain of how we might think of things. A couple of things to think about in connection with the judgment that Jesus mentions here. He will judge between essentially two different ways of practicing our humanity. 
uh, both personally but also collectively. Jesus will come and he will draw a line between these ways of being human. On the one hand here, John is anchoring our word in our, our imaginations, right? And you know, blessed are those who, who wash their robes, right? They will have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by its gates. What is he getting at? Except simply that the centrality of Jesus' story, our washing of our robes is a, is a, is a way of talking about our connection with Jesus himself. Where have you washed your robes? What have you put on your life that will enable you to come in through these particular gates that he is mentioning? It's a way of being human. Are we individuals? Are we a community that is taken seriously the story of Jesus, who is the Alpha and the Omega. Are we taking seriously the truthfulness of who he is and what he's done? Uh, on the one hand, John is drawing our attention to that side of reality. Judgment, the judgment that Jesus will make has to do with our alignment with Jesus or our lack of it. The persons that are brought into the gates are those that have washed their robes through their alignment with who Jesus is. These persons, right, are symbolically depicted as, like, once again, in this city garden type space. Because we have this reference to the tree of life, which immediately would take our imagination back into the story of Genesis, where the tree of life was. So here we are at the beginning of this new creation. But on the other hand, Jesus speaks of human beings or a way of being human that is left outside the gates. John characterizes this outside of the gateway of life, right, by another laundry list of sins or ways of being human or practicing or behaviors that characterize our humans' lives, human lives that diminish our humanity or someone else's, right? The list is what? Um, it, these are ways of living with our neighbor uh, with our power or with our resources that actually diminish humanity. He references sorcerers, fornicators, murderers, idolaters, and then a blanket statement, sort of a catch-all statement, right? All that love and practice falsehood. It isn't a comprehensive list by any stretch of the imagination. It's a list that is meant to gesture towards some agreed-upon standard that everyone inside of a culture could recognize that when these ways of being human were practiced, that it was diminishing of our humanity, the likeness of God in us. It took us further away from God, not closer. And so further away from our truest self, not closer. John is saying, Jesus is saying, that the future of his new creation lacks all of these ways of practicing humanity that diminish us, that move us away from God and so therefore away from ourselves. That new creation will only be an unfolding of God's justice, goodness, beauty, truth, and love. Here's the challenging thing for us sometimes in our world, in our day. We struggle with ideas of judgment with calling certain things good and certain things bad. But there is no justice without identifying just behavior that originates inside of God's love and perpetuates that love and behavior that does not, behavior and lives and ways of being human that, are, that originate inside of the brokenness of life and perpetuate 
human selfishness. So here, as John is wrapping up this book, as Jesus is drawing it to a close for his church, he very simply calls into mind that our hope is his future judgment, that this story of the gospel will, in fact, come true. And Jesus here says, if anyone takes away from this prophecy, right, that he will take away their name, right? There's an interesting challenge here with these words. What is he getting at except simply this? That the story that God is telling is so true that anyone that gets in the way of it, God will get in the way of you. He will not allow the brokenness of this life to continue forever. The generosity of Christ the King is his faithfulness to come to judge and to establish justice in the earth, heaven on earth. Now finally, one more thought. The desires of the human heart. What do you want? Has anyone ever asked you that question, you know, here? <laughs> what do you want? What do you want? What do you desire? Have you ever taken time to look upon your desires and to ask yourselves what you actually want in life? The answer to that question, I think, is a hard one because it takes us into a vulnerable space of having to actually look at the things that we give ourselves to, our hopes, our dreams, our desires. A number of years ago, I had some friends, a couple of friends, that really wanted me to apply for a particular pastoral position. And <clears throat> I kind of wanted it, but I was afraid to want it. And they kept pushing at me to want this. Well, Tuck, we want this for you. We want this for you. And ultimately, I refused to apply for that job because I was so absolutely terrified to acknowledge my wants. How do you live with your wants, with your desires? Some people are preoccupied with wanting things. Sometimes that characterizes us. We want Everything. We want one thing after another, so much so that there's a disordered quality to our life of wants. And some of us are more avoidant when it comes to recognizing our wants because we are terrified to desire anything. If I want something, if I don't want something, maybe that's a safer space. But interestingly, that's not the space that God wants us to occupy here, the longing of God's people is just very simply, come Lord Jesus. <laughs> come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Establish this kingdom. Bring your kingdom. Bring it to this earthly realm. Bring it into the realm of my own experience. Bring me into that future. We long for the coming of God's kingdom and for the king itself. When have you said that? Come Lord Jesus. The only time that I generally hear people say this kind of thing or that I myself say this kind of thing are in those moments when I, I'm ready to give up on anything actually working out in this world. In other words, I take these words to my lips when I feel despair, when I feel hopeless. And I recognize an inability in myself to accomplish anything. When God looks on your heart, when he looks at your deepest self, when he sees in you that which you want, what does he see in you? 
When I think about my own life with regard to desire, sometimes he sees desires I have for my children, and sometimes he sees desires I have for my marriage, my life with Stacy, and sometimes he sees things that I desire with regard to my vocation, my career, and sometimes he sees just desire for human friendship and other places of connection, and sometimes he sees desires for resources and so on and so on. When God looks on our lives, he sees that we are people that desire relationship. We want connection with one another. We don't like loneliness. When God looks on our desires, he sees that sometimes when we are in spaces of singleness, we actually desire to get married. When he looks on our lives inside of marriage, inside of loving relationships, a covenanted space of marriage. And he sees sometimes that we actually want more than just our spouse. We actually want children. Sometimes when he looks on us in a space of unemployment, he will hear and notice in you that you really want a job. (laughs) And if you're in a space of underemployment, he looks on you and he sees you really want a job that is meaningful to who you are as a person. Sometimes when he looks on you in a space of your own sickness or lack of health, what he hears and discerns in you is a desire for greater health. You want to be made well. Sometimes when he looks on us in spaces and contexts in which we feel excluded from our neighbor, he knows that what you really desire is inclusion. He knows that you want connection, you want community. And these are all totally legitimate longings of a human life. If you've ever spelt the spectrum of these kinds of wants inside of your ordinary human life, God affirms the spectrum of those desires and wants. And God would, (laughs) because he's made us in his likeness to be like him inside of a real world, inside of an earthly world. But here's the question for us. Are we able in those moments of longing to connect the dots of our desires with God himself? Do you recognize how, in some sense, all of our desires are of him and born of him and find their ending inside of him? Do you recognize that these ordinary desires, these good things that you have, are desires that God himself actually affirms but never as an end unto themselves. Never to be treated as if somehow they're ultimate, but it's so important for us to understand that God never dismisses our desires and our wants as unimportant, but that they understand, we are meant to understand they have their origin in himself who made us like himself for a life in this world. God made you want these things, but never to treat them as the end and ultimate source of your happiness. Listen again to how Lewis puts this. He says, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings and the other never to mistake them for something else of which they are a kind of echo. I must keep alive in my self the desire for my true country which I shall not find until after death. Aim at heaven, and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you lose both. When God looks on you this morning, 
What desires does he find in your heart? And does he find more ultimately that you desire him? That you desire the heavenly country, that you desire the world that he is bringing? God has created us in his likeness to live in love with him and one another and out of our life with him to live life now in this world in a way that reflects the love that he has given us in Jesus. He's made us for that. And so we are the community of God's people that are meant simply to cry in a space of want and need, but also in spaces of joy. Come, Lord Jesus. Bring this world of your kingdom into our world. Hurry it up. Hurry it along the way. Let that be the cry of our hearts as we move toward this Advent season of longing for the coming of Jesus himself. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would meet us as we think on these words of Scripture that brighten our eyes and call us to be persons of hope, but also sober us and remind us that our hope is bound up in your future judgment. So would you remind us of the greatness of Jesus, and would you remind us of his faithfulness, and would you create in our hearts a longing for him and for his kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.